It's kind of fun to go a little retro this Sunday, isn't it? Thanks, guys. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, Pastor Larry led us in a challenge to pray. Um, I hope some of you took him up on that. Thanks, Bill. Um, The the challenge was to pray for 15 minutes a day and to pray for people saying, Holy Spirit, move in Sarah, move in Serena, fill in the blank. And I know it certainly shaped my prayer life this week to pray as really as I went along and as I encountered people, Holy Spirit, move in. It gave me something specific to pray. I hope you experienced that and are experiencing that challenge. Today is um, Acts 15. We're just moving right along in our, in our Acts series. And this is a different kind of passage. It's going to force us to ask the question, how much of Scripture do I have to follow today? And how much do I get to say was bound to an ancient culture? I don't have to do that anymore. Really tricky question. It's one that I've been having a lot of conversations with people about. And so um, the sermon today has a slightly different format. So I might recommend that you take notes this morning. And so you might want to grab a back of an envelope, a pen, um, back of a bulletin somewhere, and find some space that you can take notes. Because I'm hoping... That Acts 15, as we look at the unchanging will of God, and we look at how we know what is unchanging, that that will give us some principles to use in our own study when we come across our own questions in culture and uh, regarding scripture. So let's, let's start by praying as we dig into some deep study today. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your servants, as your sons and your daughters, who long to be taught by your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be alive in us and to teach us this text that you might make sense of it for us. Help us to understand what you're trying to say and help us to understand how to apply that to the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 15 is a really major church conflict. And it's potentially what could have been the biggest inner church conflict that the, that the world had ever seen because it was over the issue of what is required to be saved. And if one group is right, then it's going to overturn 2,000 years of religious tradition. So it's a really, it's a big deal today. And I just want to go ahead and give away um, what the end of the story is. So the Holy Spirit moves among these people who follow Jesus. He moves by unifying them to what is good. So watch for the movement of the Holy Spirit. We know that our normal selves, we don't come to unity well often. And so this is a supernatural move of the Holy Spirit to unify us to what is good. How many of you have ever been in the midst of a church conflict? or seen one happen. Okay, there's a lot of hands not raised, which means you have not been among us very long. Very sorry about that. Um, The Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary to bring us to unity, and the church has experienced some conflicts. So let's dig into this one and look at some case studies here. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. It's page 934 in your pew Bible. And if you will, go ahead and leave it open because we're going to walk through this passage a little bit at a time. And I'm going to summarize some of the sections. So the controversy comes out right in the first verse. 
the Jewish followers um, of Jesus come um, concerned because the gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, just like planned, but it's moving to cultures who don't know Jewish tradition. So verse 1, here's their concern. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so this is their concern. It's a legitimate concern because circumcision was a life and death matter in the Old Testament. God's the one who instituted circumcision in Genesis 17. I'm not going to get into it very much. But just to say that if you weren't circumcised, God said that that meant that you were to be cut off from the people of God. Okay, that's what we call a non-negotiable. And the way that it was talked about, circumcision throughout the Old Testament, would give the impression that this was a lasting institute for how God was to be in relationship with his people. And so it's a good thing, and it is a right thing, that the Jewish followers of Jesus are concerned that there's no way the Gentiles could be saved because they're not following this Jewish tradition. So listen to what happens next in verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas, who we've been following for a while, into sharp dispute and debate with them. You've been in a church conflict with sharp dispute and debate. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So there's going to be a meeting in Jerusalem, the capital, with like the all-stars of Acts that we've seen so far, to hash out whether or not this 2,000-year tradition that came from God is going to stand. It's a big deal, a sharp dispute. Can the Gentiles be saved without the act of circumcision? That's the question they're dealing with. What I want us to watch as we read this case study is how do we know how to apply scripture to our own lives? How do we know what to continue to, um, to obey? So Peter is going to take this first stab at this question. And as you listen to Peter's argument, there's two things I want you to listen for. Two um, really important interpretive skills. One is a theological argument. I want you to listen for theology. That is, what is he saying about who God is? So theology, number one. Two, I want you to listen for experience. What is he experience of God? How is God moving? So an experience. Theological argument and experiential argument, and we're going to build our interpretive skills up. So let's read verse 7. After much discussion, we are only given a couple paragraphs. I would imagine this is many days. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? He's speaking about the law of Moses as the yoke. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Okay, did you hear the theological argument? Did you hear what Peter said about who God is? He said, God knows the heart. 
This is something that he knows from the Bible because God has already revealed this about himself. You could do a quick search online, God Knows the Heart, and you would come up with a ton of Bible verses. 1 Kings 8, 1 Chronicles 28, Psalm 44, Jeremiah 17, Luke 16, on and on and on. This is a something that God has revealed about himself. And Peter begins by building his argument understanding the character of God from scripture. And so he peels to them what he knows to be true of God. So he says, God knows the heart. So theologically, when we approach issues of salvation, Peter's going to say, these are matters of the heart. That's what God is looking at for salvation. And so he recognizes that when we're talking about circumcision, which is an act of the flesh, we need to be talking about the act of the heart, that God is looking at the heart. Then he appeals to a second argument. He appeals to an experiential argument. In verse 7, he tells them to remember that God sent them to the Gentiles that they might hear the gospel and believe. This is referring back to Acts chapter 10. Do you guys remember this? When he goes and meets Cornelius, has the vision of the animals and the Holy Spirit descends upon them all. Now, when our culture uses the word experiential argument, the argument would normally sound something like this. So yeah, I went and I met Cornelius, and he's a Gentile, and he's awesome. He's really generous, and he loves God, so he must be saved. Right? Isn't that the kind of things that we say? That's my experience of Cornelius. It must be true of Gentiles. That is not the kind of experiential argument I'm talking about here with biblical interpretation. I'm talking about the experience of God, looking for the consistent way that people experience the activity of God. And so Peter's argument is that he's experiencing God consistently. God gave his Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just like he did he gave to the Jews at Pentecost. So the experience of God is the same among the circumcised and the uncircumcised. God is moving in the same way. Therefore, he gives his pronouncement in verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Then I love this. Then verse 16, James gets up. Now, James is our rule follower. He wrote the book of James um, and uh, He's, he's going to be the Bible stickler. So I love that James is like, okay, those two arguments are good. I want to add a biblical argument. So our third interpretive skill is biblical argument. And he quotes the um, prophet Amos in verse 16 to 18. If you look at your scripture, you see it's either indented or capitalized because he's quoting the Old Testament. And he's quoting it in order to say that all the prophets promised that God would call the Gentiles to himself. So it is biblically consistent for God throughout the whole arc of Scripture that, God, that, um, that we would anticipate a day when Gentiles would come to know God. So this assembly, after much discussion, not just after the couple paragraphs we have here, determined based on a um, theological argument, an experiential argument, and a biblical argument— came to the conclusion that, yes, Gentiles can be and, in fact, are saved without the act of circumcision. So the Holy Spirit moves by unifying them to what is good, to this good news that salvation is available to all. James puts the final word on this in verse 19, and he says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
So the verdict is a no to the act of circumcision of the flesh as an issue for salvation because, as Peter already said in verse 9, God has now purified their hearts through faith. Circumcision was necessary as a marker in the flesh that people belong to God. And what is different is that now through Christ, God has marked their hearts by faith. It's a mark that we now symbolize through baptism. If I haven't lost you completely yet, come back at the first membership class on August 9th and Larry will tackle Colossians and the connection between circumcision and baptism. The good news that all of this is coming together um, is it's bringing us to a, a unified message that God has not changed. Theologically, God is the same. His way of salvation has not changed. All people, Jews and Gentiles, are saved by faith just as they always have been. The way that you're in relationship with God has not changed. Circumcision is still necessary. But God has now, through Christ, circumcised our hearts because he's looking at our hearts. And Jesus has made that possible. So the fleshly circumcision isn't necessary. And the result is total unity by the movement of the Spirit. And James recommends that they send a letter to go out into all the world with this resolution. And I want to read that finale in verse 28. So his conclusion is, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the verdict, all saved by grace through faith. And then these caveats that are going to give us more opportunity to practice the interpretive skills that we have just learned because now 2,000 years later, you'll hear a lot about being saved by grace through faith. You won't hear a lot about circumcision. You won't hear a lot about food laws. You will hear a lot about sexual immorality. So how have we decided 2,000 years later, what to pay attention to in Scripture and what not to. Well, we get to keep moving in this direction, and I want you to track with me here. See how the Spirit is continuing to move us in unity to what is good, to good news, and to good life. And you will do well, this letter says. You will do well if you who are created by a Heavenly Father who loves you, listen to what your Creator has said is good for you. So let's see why James cherry-picked, seemingly, these food issues and the issue of sexual immorality. I could not figure out, honestly, why these were the only three out of all of the Old Testament scriptures that uh, James picks to reiterate. So I did really hard study, but I really committed to something unique for you all today. Because our culture is, is extricating so much of scripture... I knew that I needed to give you the skills to do this yourself. So I only used a resource that you have available to you as well. So I used the ESV study Bible, which any study Bible would work. But I committed all of my study for this passage just out of a study Bible. So I didn't get into Greek. I didn't get into the big books in my office. I used what we can all use to understand God's word. So I'm going to give you some tips as we go through. 
Um, but what I, needed, what, what I needed to start by doing to understand this passage is just to keep reading more of the passage, just to understand the context of what's going on. So I want to back up a little bit in Acts 15. Remember, James gave his resolution in verse 19, it's my judgment, right, that we should not make it difficult, and, but we should write this letter. And then in verse 21, he gives his own why. James gives us why he has decided that these are the things, the food laws and the sexual immorality to include in this letter. He says, for, for is a key Greek word, and I knew that because of the study notes in the bottom of the Bible, not just because I know Greek, so you could have learned that too. For is a really key word, it's the because. Here's the grounds for his argument. Because Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So James is pointing out that it is still a big deal among the Jewish community. Moses' law is still a big deal. It's still being read every Sunday in the sanctuary. Everybody's still following these rules. So if the new believers don't follow the food laws of the Jewish believers, what's at stake? Pun intended. Yes, you are with me. Thank you. Unity, right? Unity. We saw in the beginning of Acts, how was the church known? By how they shared meals together and how they spent time together. And if they aren't willing to just give up their meat, then there's not going to be any unity among the new believers. So this one seems like an easy one for us to throw out because I don't think that there are many of us here today who listen to, who abide by the kosher laws. But it's really important to keep these, these two abstentions from James together as we study the food laws and the sexual immorality, because I want us to see why these are both included together. So we tend to just say, okay, well, for the sake of unity, it was about the food laws, but let's keep going and keep these together. So I used something called a cross-reference. In your study Bible, you'll have a bunch of little numbers in the margin that tell you other places that the Bible talks about the same things. So I came across 1 Corinthians 6, and I want you to turn there because we're going to be there for a little while. So just flip a couple more pages to page 966 to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I just want you to go ahead and take a glance after verse 12. Just look at what's in those couple paragraphs. And what I want you to notice is that it mentions both food and sexual immorality together. So as a student of the word, this is key for us. It's going to show us that, we, that this is relevant to us. These two things are, are together here. So Paul seemed to be saying, or I'm sorry, James and Acts seem to be saying that food is really an issue of unity for the church. Where, where Moses is being preached. Ten years later, Paul seems to be saying about the same thing in verses 12 and 13. He says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. So Paul seems to be saying that food is a relative issue to culture. Do you see that? That it's a temporary, food is temporary, the stomach is temporary, these things aren't eternal, everything's permissible for me, not everything is beneficial. We're getting, um, when we put 
1 Corinthians and Acts together, what we seem to be seeing is that the food laws are a culturally relative circumstance. For the sake of unity, it's permissible, might not be beneficial. Don't eat the meat because Moses is still being preached everywhere for the sake of unity. Do we see that together? So just so long as you're not causing offense, go ahead and eat your hamburger. But if you're going to be hanging out at a potluck with a bunch of Jewish followers of Jesus, then maybe just don't eat the meat. It's permissible, but it might not be beneficial. Now, here's what's really interesting in that same verse, verse 13, doesn't even change numbers. Paul addresses sexual immorality in a very different way. So read with me verse 13, the rest of it. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I'm going to pick and choose among those next two paragraphs. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Sometimes we're going to have to take advice from others on what is good for us, and we might not like it. This week, I failed my first sugar test. Ugh, I know. And so I had to go on Friday to learn how to prick my fingers so I could check what my sugar levels were. So far, so good. But I recognize that I might go back to the midwife and she might tell me that you can't eat any more sugar for the rest of your pregnancy and you need to exercise a lot more, even though I'm like painfully waddling these days. So bigger problem is that I'm just like, all I want is chocolate chip cookies and I'm really afraid and I'm totally tricking out the test so that I don't get caught. My midwife is not putting down limitations for me to punish me. She's giving me limitations so that my body will thrive and so that I won't have a baby that's too big to deliver come October. Okay, so we are going to dig into what God has given about guidelines for sexual immorality, and it might be that you don't like them just like I don't like my diabetic guidelines, but... God intends what is good for you. Remember the end of the letter. So that it might go well with you, avoid these things. So stick with me as we dig in. And I want to use our interpretive skills to really challenge whether or not the issue of sexual immorality is something that we still need to abstain from today. So let's use our skills, our theological skills. Is sex an issue of theology? It is. The first time that we encounter sex is in Genesis chapter 1, when God says he created male and female. He created them in his image and gave them to one another. So the way that a man and a woman come together in unity tells us something about the image of God. Which I don't have time for today, but it's a beautiful thing. It's a theological concern. And theologically, who God is and who we are as image bearers of God has not changed. Nowhere 
In scripture or through history, has God revealed, I have a new image bearer or I am someone different? In fact, I was reminded after first service that God actually says, I have not changed. So theologically, the issue has not changed. Second, experientially, we see no consistency that God has moved among a sexually immoral community the way that he moved to bring his Holy Spirit to the Jews and to the Gentiles. So you're not going to, we've not ever heard about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came with healing and signs and wonders in an orgy community, okay? Experientially, the experience of God among sexual immorality has not changed. Finally, biblically, nowhere, and I mean this absolutely, there is no permissible language anywhere in Scripture that gives us any leeway as it regards sexual immorality. In fact, you see quite the opposite. You see things like Paul here giving a sentence and a half to food laws that used to fill an entire Old Testament and then paragraphs on the issue of sexual immorality. And you see long lists of what is included in sexual immorality. So if we go back to all our study options that we learned from Peter and James, theologically, experientially, biblically, we have no permission to engage in sexual immorality. So what is sexual immorality? Well, let's let scripture define it. Any kind of sexual activity engaged in outside of marriage is sexual immorality. This is where I get really popular. Let's look at scripture. And see what is included in sexual immorality. Well, we see in uh, John chapter 4 that cohabitation is included. This is when Jesus comes to the woman at the well. She's had five husbands. She's living with a man who isn't her husband. And here's the encounter. Jesus extends beautiful life to her. Living water. The woman leaves Jesus rejoicing. And his last words to her are, Go and sin no more. We see Jesus talk about adultery as sexual immorality. In John chapter 8, you'll remember that the, um, the Jewish leaders bring a woman caught in the act of adultery in front of Jesus. And no one throw, throws a stone. And so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. He extends beautiful grace to this woman. And his last words are, go and leave your life of sin. I can't point to a story of pornography in Scripture because, thanks be to God, pornography didn't exist then the way it does now. But I guarantee you it is a matter of sexual immorality because all of these issues, cohabitation, adultery, pornography, all address what it is to unify yourself to someone else. Because pornography, there is a real person on the other side of that image. And so when you engage... In sexual immorality with another person, do you know what's at stake? Go back to 1 Corinthians 6, verse, 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? When you unify yourself outside of marriage, you unify the very Spirit of God in an act that is unholy and not permissible. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it is not good for you to unite yourself with someone who is not your spouse. Do you see, can you see how serious this is? 
Now, I'm not standing here to condemn you. I've really struggled to bring this message. And I found words from Paul that really helped me pastorally that I want to pass on to you. I've written them on my heart. They're from 2 Corinthians. So the very next letter that Paul writes to the same people. And he says to them, I fear that when I come to you, I might not find you as I wish. And that you might not find me as you wish. And then he goes on to list sins within himself that as your pastor, I can stand before you and say, I am not faultless. I am guilty in these things that Paul lists. He says, perhaps there may be in me quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And yet, even as a sinner standing before you, I can continue with Paul's words and continue to say this to you. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And I know among us, and I mourn among us, those of you who have practiced without repentance and are practicing without repentance, immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Not because I doubt for a second that you don't love Jesus. Not for a second Because I doubt that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. But I mourn because it does not go well with you. And it is not going well with us. Your pornography addiction is fueling a sex industry that's enslaving our teenage girls. And is berating, I mean completely destroying the self-esteem of our teenagers. When you choose to cohabitate, I hear this from you because I've only done one wedding as a pastor where the couple wasn't cohabitating. So I've heard every excuse in the book. And when I hear things like, well, we're just trying to figure things out or we're carrying a lot of old bag and just just want to make sure that it's not going to tear us up or just want to make sure that the the finances are going to go okay or that they get over that thing that I don't like. Do you know what that is? It's an escape clause. You've already decided what's going to make your relationship not work. And so if and when you do get married, statistically, you're twice as likely to get divorced. Why? Because you've already destroyed your relationship, the trust and security in your relationship by cohabitating with an escape clause. It does not go well with you. And so I mourn. You're squirming. It's okay. I am too. But here's the deal. It's amazing to me. If you flip back to Acts 15, you'll see what the response was of this message. Salvation is available to all. Just don't eat the meat for the sake of unity and don't be sexually immoral. Verse 31, the letter has gone out. The people read it and they were glad That's not strong enough. The ESV says rejoice. So even without going into the Greek, I can tell you it's not strong enough. We rejoiced. The message came and the people rejoiced for its encouraging message. 
Because they got the word like from the midwife, don't eat chocolate chip cookies because your baby's healthy. Rejoice. The Lord has come and has given you salvation. You are free to have relationship with him. So don't unite yourself with another. Amen. Rejoice. I'm encouraged. This is a good, this is the good life. And it might go well with you. So if you are squirming more so than rejoicing, can I just invite you to repent? Just tell Jesus, I'm sorry. He's promised in verse 9 that he will cleanse your heart. So just invite him to cleanse your heart and lead you in the good life. Repentance brings us a humility and a unity that unifies us together as a community. And we as a community need to repent as a church, capital C, of our sexual immorality. And that repentance brings unity and humility and encouragement and good life. If you need more than repentance, if it's time to change your... Repent actually means you're going this way, turn around and go the other direction. If you need help going the other direction, can I just say that when that letter went out, they didn't just drop the letter and leave. They dropped the letter and stayed and encouraged the brothers. And we are here and we're staying. We're staying with you. So if you need lay counseling, if you need to talk to somebody about your past, just call up the church. We'll set you up this week. If you are cohabitating and you want to go the other direction, come in. We'll, we'll put you in pre-marriage counseling. We'll get you guys going on the right path. If you are really needing to wrestle out some old issues and you don't even know what it means to repent, come to Celebrate Recovery on Thursday night. That is a community that will love you and will repent right along with you. It is, it is good news. It is good. It is good news that the Lord has purified your heart. That the creator who loves you has set up good boundaries for you to have a good life. It is good news that your creator sent his son to die for you. To fulfill all the law that we couldn't possibly fulfill. That was a yoke that we, it was impossible for us to, bury, to carry. Who was resurrected so that he might send us his spirit to live within us. That we might be temples of the Holy Spirit. Who know unity with God and his presence forever. And if that is new good news for you today... I just encourage you to start talking to your God who loves you and tell him, Lord, I receive your good news and I want to walk in your good life and walk it out with him. Come and pray with our prayer team later if you want to do that with somebody else. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Thanks be to God. Honor God with your body. We are to rejoice and be encouraged because God has made a way for us to be in relationship, a way to thrive. And that, my friends, has not changed. And so you can keep on clapping for the good news that God has given you. So let me leave you with the words that unify us in the good news of God. These are words from all over scripture. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us, even while we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith. That is, this is not 
a work of our own that no man may boast. It is a free gift of God. And so Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Thank you.